0: Welcome to the first ever episode of From Theorems to Theories. I'm your co-host, Alexander Elbekian. I earned my BS degree from Notre Dame University, Lebanon, and I'm currently a graduate student in theoretical physics, specializing in condensed matters slash quantum computation. Here's your co-host, Steve Ashkarian. Please, Steve, introduce yourself.
1: Yes. Hello, guys. So I'm Steve Ashkaryan, and um, I did my bachelor's degree in mathematics at the Lebanese University. And now I'm doing my graduate studies at the American University of Beirut, and I'm specializing in several complex variables. Today, we have a theorem and a theory. Basically, I will give a theorem and Alexander will give a theory, and both of us will explain each one. So what are you going to talk about, Alexander?
0: Well, I'm going to talk about hidden variable theories which are basically attempts at disproving the non-locality of physics, at least at the microscopic level, basically trying to disprove the spookiness of quantum mechanics at the quantum level itself. So what are you going to talk about, Steve? Yes. uh, So
1: today I will uh, talk about an example where we can generalize a concept in mathematics from an arbitrary case, to, uh, from a special case to an arbitrary case and another example that we cannot do that so basically i will give a counter example that we have some concept that happens in the particular case and cannot be generalized to the arbitrary case so well, why don't we start alexander about your topic
0: all right so by the way how like when you said you what you're trying to do is from a specific, what, what you're trying to do is to show us that there are some, theory, some theorems, at least, or some stuff in math. Uh, mind me when I say stuff, uh, where, where you have a specific case, you could never prove it for a general case, right? Yes, That's what you're
1: exactly, definitely,
0: 100%. Wow, because like there are some stuff in, uh, at least in quantum mechanics, which are related to the topic that I'm going to talk about such as like the no cloning theorem. So uh, now it's related to my topic and I want to discuss it a bit. So basically in quantum mechanics, you cannot clone information to another state. And when I say state, it's like, for example, you cannot clone, uh, let's say a spin down electron to be the same as the other spin up electron, which is next to it. And you, like you use the same, let's say the way of thinking that uh, you, you were talking about just now. So you you just show it that it's only for specific cases and it's not arbitrary and there's no way that you can turn that state into an arbitrary state. And that's really interesting. All right. So coming back to the topic at hand, uh, as I said, I'd like to discuss the hidden variable theories. uh, Specifically, uh, what hidden variable theories say that is particles, when they behave, they don't behave randomly. And that's a bit Counter, I'm not going to say it's counterintuitive, it's actually really intuitive, uh, but it, that, that's against quantum mechanics, at least from uh, the Copenhagen interpretation, uh, since we know that quantum particles behave uh, based on their amplitudes, which are basically probability distributions, usually Gaussian distributions. And here I would like to discuss what those hidden variable theories are, and I would like to discuss why they're wrong. But first, Even though I'm going to talk about a theory, I would like to start with with an experiment that was conducted by Stern and Gerlach in the early 1900s. So Stern and Gerlach assembled ions together. And when they did, they shot them through magnetic fields and those magnetic fields were aligned. So that's the fun part. So they're aligned. Let's assume they're aligned on a Z axis, an arbitrary Z axis. And when they shot those atoms they saw that there was an even distribution of atoms which went upwards and an even distribution and, and, and the same amount of atoms went downwards. Well, that was really spooky for them because they actually thought that spins or angular momenta that atoms had, because we know that magnetic fields affect the angular momentum of atoms. That's just a given law and I'm not I'm going, to, I'm going to delve into it. So they assumed that angular momentum should have been linear, uh, we should have had the spectrum of angular momentum but that's not that that wasn't the case actually so what we got is two groups of atoms one went up one group went up and the other group went down so let's assume we have n atoms we have n over 2 which is up n over 2 which is down and that was really spooky and that was one of the let's say birthplaces of quantum theory but okay yeah we of, of, at least the quantization of uh, angular momentum For example, we have other quantizations such as energy, which Planck started it and stuff like that. But this is really interesting. And it's actually taught for any undergraduate course in quantum mechanics because it really gives you a taste of what spin or the quantum angular momentum is. And I'm not talking about the total, which is a different case. So when they did this, they wanted to think about other things as well. So let's assume that we have a a gun that shoots those ions and we have a magnetic field, which is aligned throughout the Z, axis, and it's an arbitrary axis, so you, could, you guys could imagine anything. So when they shot these particles through them and they split, let's assume we only take the group that went up and we take those particles that went up and we shoot them throughout another uh, magnetic field. But this time that magnetic field is aligned on an orthogonal plane of the z-axis. So whether it's y or x, it's in the, it's not important. It's arbitrary. And they saw that we... Again, had a split of atoms. So again, we had, for example, we have N over 2 ions from the, from the start. So now we have N over 4, which went to the left side, for example, since we're talking about an orthogonal. Or, I didn't lose you, right, Steve? No, no, I'm, I'm
1: listening, Alexander.
0: All right. No, no, like you're following the chain of thought. That's what I'm trying yes, to Yes, yes.
1: All
0: right. So uh, you have half of the ions that went left and half of the ions that went right. And let's assume we take only the ions which are on the left side, which are basically n over four of the ions of width, that we had initially, since we we started with n ions. And you shoot them through another magnetic field, which are, uh, which is on the z direction, which is like the pr- first direction. You will also have an n over eight difference between each each state. So like uh, n over eight ions which go up and n over eight ions which go down. So this gave a really big Uh, let's say question where physicists had to like discuss and it turns out that measurement apparently affected the state of the system that's being studied itself hence the Copenhagen interpretation where the observer affects the system etc and honestly this is just my personal opinion I'm more of a Copenhagen fan rather than the multi-worlds theory because that's just like I don't know I, just don't I know. have a
1: small question, Alexander. Yeah, sure. um, when you were saying n over eight and n basically, uh, yeah. is n also always considered as an even number? Well,
0: that's arbitrary, or... isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, but it's... let's say n was odd, and you're just yeah, okay, dividing you can, you can assume
0: eight. it's an even even number so, Okay,
1: the experiment is being assumed that n is an even number. Okay, that's why you're saying that half goes left and half goes right. That was well, your concept.
0: Theoretically speaking, yes, but you have to take into account standard deviations because these are statistics. These are not accurate to the to the, each single particle itself. Okay, okay, exactly I guess. All right, so coming back to hidden variable theories, now I would like to discuss a different topic. So Einstein, when he saw this, and Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, when they saw this, they were baffled and they said, no, there is something that's going on under the table and the particles are somehow communicating with each other. For example, let's take a particle which has zero angular momentum and zero spin. Now angular momentum is like the spin itself is something intrinsic to a particle itself, but the angular momentum is not. But in this case, since we're talking with, I'd like to talk about bosons, for example. So bosons can have zero spin. Now these are, for for a mathematician like you, maybe this is something you would ask, why are they like that? Well, well, I'm just gonna tell you that take it as an axiom. All right, bosons have zero spin. So when they okay. have zero spin, uh, the laws of quantum mechanics allow that boson to have a zero angular momentum. So let's assume we have a particle which has a zero angular momentum and zero spin. And the law of conservation of angular momentum tells us that if this particle decays to two other particles, so then those two particles which come up, the daughter particles, have to have, when you when you add their angular momentum, has to give us zero, and their spin as well. So like, if they decay, then there's a really high chance that you have to have a half up spin and a half down spin. So that's just the laws of conservation of angular momentum. So Einstein said that these are, that you just have to take every single permutation of how these particles could like break off. And when you do that, they reach to a certain probability that I think it was one over three. If you take in three axis, if you study these particles in three dimensions, I think it was one over three. the the chance of having each particle being a, of a different sign. For example, when let's say one particle goes off and it's and it has a plus sign on the x axis, a spin up on the x axis, and then they said that the other particle has to have a spin down either on y or z. That's so the probability of that type of thing occurring and x, y, z are interchangeable, and we are assuming orthogonal uh coordinate uh, an orthogonal coordinate system so um, I'm reference Alexander. Well.
1: what yeah so, uh okay. i lost you when you we were talking about uh, einstein and the permutation of these uh, spins i guess yeah uh, can okay. you repeat that
0: all right so each spin has a translation along each axis so a spin can be found on z y and x all right so you can yes. have a spin up on X or a spin down on X or a spin up on Y, a spin down on z, uh, on, on Y or a spin up on Z and spin down on Z. So you can have these. So what basically Einstein tried to say is, not Einstein per se, but they, it was their idea to start with. To, he didn't exactly say this, but they, they did design this experiment, this thought experiment, that basically each, for example, let's say the zero spin boson breaks off and one particle goes uh, to the right side and the other goes to the left side. And since it's a zero spin boson, then their ang- angular momentums on the same side have to add to zero, but that's a different case. But the main point is, uh, for example, if let's say one particle goes to the right side, let's say, okay, and that has its plus sp- plus spin on the Z axis, then they said the probability of each particle having a minus sign on Y or X notice that I'm not saying z because I talked about I talked about z for the first particle, I'm talking about y and x for the second particle, was a given probability, which is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, if we're studying it in three dimensions, it's one over three. All right? Yeah. But the laws of quantum mechanics clearly state that each particle can be expressed as the superposition of multiple states. in in that, let's say, coordinate system. So for example, if you have a particle and you want to study its probability of having a plus Z state, in quantum mechanics, there is something called the generator, where it's basically a vector, N, an arbitrary vector N, with cosine theta over two with an up state, plus a sine theta over two with a down state. And when I say downstate, upstate, these are vectors as well. And cosine theta and sine theta are uh, something, called, something which is called uh, global phase. So they just add a minus or a plus or like a constant value next to them. So it doesn't really affect the state itself. It just gives it a phase. So when you take these when you when you take this approach to quantum mechanics and to these particles and you assume that your coordinate system is not a 90 degree coordinate system for example you assume that it's a 1 120 120 120 coordinate system and you run the numbers on the same type of topic for example you want to find the probability that if we have one particle which is plus z the other particle has to be minus y then you'll find out that the probability for any case for any for any coordinate system for example plus z plus x plus uh, y for the right hand side, and minus uh, x minus z minus y for the right hand for the left hand side of the particles. Then you'll see that it's three over four rather than uh, what's the word uh, one over three, like the hidden variable theorem theory. So this actually put a really big stop to what Einstein was saying that these are uh, spooky actions from afar because they are actually spooky actions from afar. And to be honest, quantum theory is the best tested. Uh, theory out there. so
1: was this term spooky actions from afar coined by Einstein himself or someone yeah else this was actually it?
0: yeah this was actually coined by himself. so basically that's it. so the, the, the whole thing the whole thing revolves around this. Einstein basically said that these particles have to be communicating with each other before the uh, let's say the particle decays. So they just agree on literally this is this was the idea. They agree on what to become when they sp- come out. So, for example, if the first particle is plus z, then they agree that the other particle has to be minus z or anything else. But these equations, the laws of quantum mechanics, which are based on Heisenberg and Dirac, which give us, uh, which tell us that each state can be represented in a Hilbert space, which I believe you know about Hilbert spaces more than I do because I just take them for granted, and you guys have to prove those stuff for those things. Uh, you can express any vector with respect to, uh, especially if it's a finite dimensional, and in our case, it's a two-dimensional Hilbert space, with uh, the basis vectors themselves. So any vector could be re- represented for with the basis vectors themselves. And we choose to represent those basis vectors as uh, plus z and minus z if we're talking about the z Hilbert space. So, cos- uh, so cosine theta over 2 plus z plus sine theta over 2 minus z uh, in these cases, and if we t- assume that each angle between the spaces, uh, be- be- between each coordinates, between each, uh, sorry, between each axis is 120 instead of 90 degrees. So we're not working with an orthogonal Hilbert space. We're working with a non-orthogonal Hilbert, sp- Hilbert space. Then we would get different probabilities than the ones that the hidden variable theorem theory uh, suggests. And this is actually proven by experiment. And these are called, for example, the Bell, the Bell inequalities. I hope I I could make myself clear for you, bro, uh, Steve.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, uh, that was that was really nice, uh, really nice talk. Uh, and uh, I wish we we could, we could have taken advantage of uh, of an Hilbert space without doing proofs, but we can't, sadly.
0: Yeah, but sadly that's do. the case. That's yeah. the case. Uh, well, I believe you have a theorem prepared for us, Steve, and I would yes. really like to hear about it. Yes,
1: but before I start, when you were talking about the stern gerlach experiment, yeah. I took a note, and you said it was being happened in the early 1900s, and I want to add that my theorems that I want to talk about today also happened in the early 1900s, so math and physics were really in business during that time, so yeah. that's a really good thing. Hope that that becomes the case in our PhD That'd journey. Be-
0: Sally, we've had a rough patch these few years. And by few years, I mean these past 40 years, baby.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, today I will give two examples. The first example is that we have a particular case, which I will state in a few moments, and I want to generalize it. So this example happens in number theory and algebra, and it's something that all of us know from school, basically, uh, from high school. So it's the fundamental theorem of arithmetic or the unique prime factorization theorem that happens in Z. Z is the integers. So Alec, when someone comes and tells you that what's a prime number, what do you answer?
0: Some, a number that's only divisible by its own self and yeah. by one, which gives us a whole number itself. Yeah, exactly. So by one and itself. But wait, when you said uh, prime factorization, so does, yeah. does that mean that each number has a unique prime factorization, right? You're exactly. About yeah, oh, yes, that's interesting because that's yeah. also used for uh, for stuff in quantum quantum uh, computing and spe- specifically quantum cryptography for sure. Yeah, of course. Stuff like number that. theory is really
1: helpful in those fields. Yeah. yeah. So, right. uh, yeah, prime factorization. And uh, remember, I said unique prime factorization yeah. theorem, yeah, not, yeah. not prime factorization theorem. So that unique part will play an important role. So let's say we have a number n, which is greater than one. And this number is an integer. Okay. So the theorem tells us that either n is a prime number or n can be factorized into prime numbers. So what is that? Let me give you an example. Let's say 120. 120, you can write it as two cubed times three times five. Okay, two is a prime number, three is a prime number, and five is a prime number.
0: So the prime
1: number, yeah, the prime number theorem tells us that if you take any number, we can do this. But why unique? That's the question. So it's unique up to reordering. What does up to reordering mean? That means that you have exactly three twos, exactly one three, and exactly one five. And it doesn't matter, let's say, if you write two times three times two squared times five, or two cubed times three times five. These two represent the same factorization. So that's why we say unique up to reordering. So the order doesn't matter. So this was proved by Euclid. Long time so what ago, you're and saying
0: is, so what you're saying is it's a unique yeah. prime, assuming that we're not counting the orders of how we multiply the numbers together. That's yeah,
1: what you're yeah. Saying. yes, exactly. The order right. doesn't matter, but the, the number of twos and the number of three and the number of fives and 120's prime factorization has to be the same in each factorization. That, so for example, six, be,
0: six, yes, so six. So assume that ordering like we we're taking into account ordering, then it's going to have two. Prime factorizes two times three or three times two, right? That's what. Yeah,
1: these two represent the same factorization. They are not different factorizations. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. That, okay. Fair enough.
1: Okay. Go on. Okay. So this was pro- proved by Euclid in his uh, book Euclid's Elements, and I will give you some culture, Alec. Everyone, like in the non-mathematical or physics community, you know, tells me this question: Why is one not a prime number? Yeah. Can why you answer is that? that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you if you know it now. People, this was done by convention, but the convention is based on this theorem, the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, or the unique prime factorization theorem. So, if we considered one as a prime number, then it wouldn't be unique, would it? It wouldn't be a unique prime factorization theorem; it would be just the prime factorization theorem. Because why? Because you can multiply because
0: one as, as many times, and you still gonna get exactly. one. Exactly. So, so, for you example, have two. infinite ways to multiply one, so you wouldn't have the prime factorization. Exactly,
1: one hundred percent. So.
0: For example, you can write two equals two times one,
1: equals two times one times one, equals two, two times one times one times so on, however much ones you want, because it will not change. And ergo, this, the unique part will lose its importance. So that's why mathematicians came and said, we want something beautiful, so let's not consider one as a prime number, and let's just um, consider it as a composite number, and we could uh, write the term as the unique prime factorization theorem. Wow, amazing. Yeah. So. This is being happened in Z, the integers. So what is the generalization of this theorem? It's happening in PIDs, which is called a principal ideal domain. What is a principal ideal domain? So there's this thing called a ring okay? in mathematics. It's an algebraic structure. Basically, for in layman's terms, it's a, it's a set where it has two operations, an addition and a multiplication. Okay, It's something like Z, but it's not Z itself, but it's something arbit- uh, general. Okay. What's the principal ideal domain? What's an ideal and what's a domain? An ideal is basically a subset of the spring where if you add two elements in, in the ideal, it's still in the ideal. And if you multiply an element with an element in R, any element in R, it's still in the ideal. So basically in Z, this means that Uh, if the multiples of two, for example, is an ideal in Z. Why is that? Because if you add two plus four, you get six, and the six is still a multiple of two. And for example, if you multiply three with a multiple of two, let's say three times eight, it's still a multiple of two. So the the ideal generated by two is something that's happening in a PID where we take an element in R and we say, let's say A, we took the element A, and we say that A generates an ideal. So now, uh, what's happening and how can we prove that the PID also has a prime factorization? So that's what we want to do, right? We want to make a prime factorization in the PID because we had it in Z, but we want it to be in the PID. So this proof, I'm not gonna do the proof, I'm just gonna tell you what ingredients were used in the proof. So the ingredients used in the proof is something called ascending chain condition. And that's it, basically. We prove that the principal ideal domain satisfies an ascending chain condition, and that will uh, imply that the PID has uh, unique factorization. Let me explain to you what's an uh, ascending chain condition. Yeah. Okay. Do. Yeah. So let's say you have arbitrary many ideals, I one, I two, I three, I four, I k, etc., etc., infinitely many, and we have I one subset of I two, I two subset of I three, I three subset of I four, etc. This sequence satisfies ACC, which is ascending chain condition, if there exists a number, a rank, let's say, N, capital N, such that I capital N equals I capital N plus 1 equals I capital N plus 2, etc. So along this chain, there exists one ideal, such that after that ideal, all of the ideals are the same. Do hmm. you understand, Alec? Uh, what's an of Kind of, I guess kind of. Okay, so I1 was a subset of I2, I2 was a subset of I3, et cetera, etc. Et then you reach I n minus 1 is a subset of I n. And after I n, which is a subset of I n plus 1, I n will be equal to I n plus 1, I n plus 1 will be equal to I n plus 2, and et cetera, till right. infinity. So All basically, cool. in the end, you will stop. All of them will be the same. All so right. this is AC. Now, there's a theorem. Which is uh, which says that a PID satisfies ACC. So if you take a PID, you will also ha- you will always have an ascending chain condition. So if you take a sequence of uh, ideals, like I stated earlier, you will eventually stop. Eventually stop means what uh, ascending chains con- condition means. So there will exist a uh, rank n where eventually i n will be equal to i n plus one, etc. all
0: right
1: So now we have two theorems, which is uh. If and only if, basically, both of them together would give it if and only if. So the first implication is going to tell us that, now not an if and only if, actually, it's an implication, but I will give you a stronger condition afterwards. So let me, bear with me. If we have a ring R, okay, which is an integral domain, an integral domain Could is you, something- can please
0: define what a ring is? Just
1: Yeah, yeah I, I, I already think... did, actually. Uh, a ring was uh, a set which has two operations, an addition and a multiplication which satisfies a certain number of axioms which is associativity and such uh, and uh, distributive laws and etc so it's something similar to z so think about as a ring something similar to z but not quite okay okay so we're taking this ring and we're saying that it's an integral domain an integral domain is something really easy to explain if you have two elements in the ring, a and b, and you multiply them together, and you say that the answer is zero, a times b equals zero, but a and b are not numbers, huh? They are elements in the ring. All what right. can you conclu- what can you conclude? What do you think?
0: So a times b is zero, right? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. But they're not numbers; they're elements.
1: Yeah. What, what what's the logical thing to to imply?
0: Can I assume that one of them?
1: Yeah, yeah. Continue is zero set. Like, okay, it's a zero element, actually. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, you're right. You're saying that one of them is the zero element. So this only happens in integral domains. It doesn't have happen in every ring. For example, in the matrix ring, if you have two matrices which are non-zero, the answer could be zero, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so in some rings, this happens. In some rings, it doesn't happen. So we're assuming that what you said, that if we have two A times B equals zero, then one of them is zero. We're taking the ring that satisfies this, okay? All right. So it satisfies this, and it also satisfies ACC, the ascending chain condition. All right. Okay. So what are we implying? What does this theorem tell us? Then, if we take any element in the ring which is non-zero, this element can be factored into product of irreducible elements. What is an irreducible element? An irreducible element, think of them as the prime numbers in Z. It's the analog in the ring. Okay, so irreducible elements are analogs of prime numbers in Z. They're numbers right. that can only be, quote-unquote, divided divided by themselves and one, quote-unquote, as well, because we don't have numbers here. We have only ring elements. All so right, do you enough. understand the concept of irreducible elements? More or less, yeah. Okay, it's like primes, but in the ring.
0: All right, fair enough. Basically,
1: here we proved that we didn't prove it i'm just telling you the theorem that any num, any element in the ring we can uh, write them as a factorization of irreducible elements but but, but notice is it unique? That the, like the primes yeah, exactly exactly i didn't use the word unique why because uniqueness only happens in the pid not in a ring that is a do, that is an integral domain which satisfies acc so the other theorem i want to talk about is that in a pid remember a pid satisfies an acc which agrees with the hypothesis in the earlier theorem. Because in the earlier theorem, if r is an integral domain satisfying ACC. Now, I'm telling you the ring itself is a PID. Then the factorization will happen because of the earlier theorem. And moreover, the factorization is unique, up to reordering. Again, reordering. Remember, in Z, we had up to reordering about the numbers. Yeah. And up to multiplication with units. A unit is basically an analog of one in the ring, so it's like so basically one. basically, the
0: identity.
1: Yeah, the, the identity element, exactly, for uh, with respect to the multiplication. All right. Okay, so that's why uh, th- that's it basically. So in the PID, we have the same unique factorization of irreducibles, and the irreducibles are analogs of primes, and we're done with the first generalization. All
0: right.
1: Okay. So now the other one which is a counter example which we can we have a theorem in the special case uh and we, we cannot can generalize, generalize
0: it. it to an arbitrary case
1: yes so this is happening in complex analysis and several complex variables which is a field i really like and i'm going to talk about the Riemann mapping theorem so the Riemann mapping theorem is really easy to understand so you have a non-empty set subset of c you have a non-empty subset of c u let's say u is the subset and u is not the entire set. So U is not the complex plane. It has points which does not belong. It has points. There are points in C that are not in U. Okay. All right. And U is simply connected. In layman's terms, U does not have holes. No, no holes in U. All right. Okay. Then there exists a biholomorphic mapping.
0: What f- does biholomorphic mean? Yeah. Just for the
1: sake that, you. I will come to that. There exists a biholomorphic mapping f from U. The U is our original set. To the unit disc the unit disc is basically every complex number which has modulo l- modulus less than or equal to one less so than one the so,
0: unity root of unity
1: no not the unit different the unit disc the unit circle in the, okay, okay, the complex yeah. plane center zero radius one
0: oh like the disc itself is included so ah okay 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 so if it were just like the circle then it's the root of unity but since it's the disc so it's anything
1: yeah positive. the equation yes yes exactly all right all right so Since it's less than 1, it's not the root of unity, per se. Exactly, exactly. Sorry, my oh, bad. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. Okay, so uh, basically, what's a biholomorphic map? Basically, biolomorphism means that some, in some way, this is, again, in layman's terms, uh, that it's, they're the same. U and D01, D01 is the unit disk, they're the same in, in a way, okay? All right. So basically, you can change U into D01 really nicely. This is some some way to make you understand what biholomorphism means. All right. Okay. And this was proved actually by Henry Poincaré. And he also proved that the function f, the biholomorphism is unique. So you can only find one between a set u and and the the unit disc. Okay? All right. Okay, a bit of history. So Bernard riemann proved this theorem in 1851. So we didn't reach the 1900s yet. Okay, uh, and his, he proved this in his PhD thesis, actually. But he weakened the assumptions, and he didn't you, use the fact that you was simply connected. He used the fact that the boundary of u is piecewise smooth. Piecewise smooth is um, how can I explain it? Let's say you have um, a chain of curves, and each curve is smooth, but in the edges they're not smooth. So in the connections they're not. That's that's what it means by piecewise smooth. Okay. okay, so, yeah, Riemann did this proof and he used something called yeah. uh, the Dirichlet Principle, which I don't know a lot about. Is it Dirichlet or
0: Dirichlet? Like, for, in my complex of
1: course, we used to say, I don't know. Yeah, if, it's the same guy, it's the same guy. I do Is he French know, or use, something? I think he's German. I think he's German. I If German not is sure.
0: Dirichlet, but if it's, if it's French, it's Dirichlet. Anyways, go on, sorry.
1: Yeah, well, no, no worries. So he used something called the Dirichlet Principle. And uh, it was really cumbersome and it, it had some flaws which were stated by Weierstrass and Lars Alfvors which were really uh, influential uh, complex analysis and uh, real analysis during the time. They did uh, many works in function theory. Then the first rigorous proof which I learned in my graduate course uh, was done by, no, not, not the first one actually. The first one was done by um, uh, William Fogg Osgood in 1900. Okay, we reached. No, for weaker
0: months. assumptions, right? Weaker conditions. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. That's what rigorous means. All right. Uh, and there were no flaws in the theorem. And he is something wow. called the Green's functions, and he proved the existence of the Green's Wait, functions, and that applied the the proof of the Riemann. Uh, Wait, mapping. Is,
0: aren't these Green's functions the same thing we use to solve Poisson equations? Yeah, like second order differential point.
1: equations. Exactly. He proved that these things exist. Because, first of all, you read the definition of the Green functions, and it satisfies whatever, whatever. But he proved that such a function exists. Wow, okay. Okay. So then, Constantine Carateodori came. He was an Italian mathematician. And he gave another proof in 1912. And this proof I learned in my graduate studies. And it was a really beautiful proof. It was one of my favorite theorems in that course. Because he used analytical tools. And... Used every single, not every single, but most of the theorems that we learned in the beginning of the course, and we proved the Riemann mapping theorem in the late later on in the course. So what did we use? We used something called open mapping theorem, the Schwarz lemma, Rouché's theorem, and Montel's theorem. I will not talk about these because each one maybe deserves a talk on their own. Wow. But they're really important. They're really important tools in uh, complex analysis, and they're really important theorems in complex analysis, which Need a little, uh, which need a lot of work to prove actually.
0: By okay. the way, I just have a small question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's regarding the word lemma and theorems. Like, I notice the word lemma only. It's it's only found in math textbooks. Like, what's the difference between lemmas and theorems?
1: Okay, so basically, um, I I don't know what lemma means, but I can tell you what uh, like means. But I don't I know what it implies.
0: All right. Before. A
1: big theorem a really big theorem tough to prove it's easy the preceding theorem which will help the hard theorem so we call that happening yeah it helps the theorem when you're proving it you say by the previous lemma we can imply this right. because you already did the proof there
0: So and the corollary example, if- a, lemma a specific chapter can be represented as a theorem in a different chapter depending on what the chapter is talking about.
1: Yeah, maybe. Let's say you have a theorem X and you have lots of steps in the theorem of X. You can change the steps into lemmas and prove the theorem by saying by, this, by the lemma one, lemma two, lemma three, we have this.
0: Fair enough,
1: fair enough, fair enough. Thanks for the clarification. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Okay, so this was the map, uh, Riemann mapping theorem. I just want to note one beautiful remark that happens. Uh, remember when I said that U is simply connected and U is not the entire set. In the proof of the Riemann mapping theorem gave, given by Kara uh, Theodori, the hypotheses were used in the first line of the, the, the proof. So basically, you use the both, both uh, givens, which is U not equal to C, and U simply connected in the beginning of the proof, and then it all goes on by itself. So what does he use? He said he says well, that when u is not equal to c, there exists some um, complex number omega 0, which does not belong to u, because u is not in the entire That takes the complex number z to z minus w, uh, omega 0. Oh, and, and
0: Steve, z... could you please repeat that? I lost you for a bit.
1: Ah, yes, yes, OK. So. Yeah, when we're saying that U is not equal to C, this implies that there is a, there is a complex number omega zero in C, which is not in U, right? Because U is yeah. not part of C. So he gives a functions uh, he gives a function that's a psi, and he says that it takes z to z minus omega zero, and this function, of course, is never zero in U because omega zero is not in U.
0: Right.
1: And U is simply connected. Uh, basically, there's a theorem. Oh, okay, okay. I'm not going to go into this. It's uh, no need. And the last part of my talk will be why does this uh, Riemann mapping theorem does not generalize to Cn? Cn is basically the Cartesian product of the complex numbers. Right. So it was uh, proved by Henry Poincaré in 1907. He basically proved that there exists no biholomorphic map between the polydisc and the and the ball in the, on Cn, which are both uh, simply connected sets. And this is a counter example. and Poncary's original proof was based on a computation and comparison of the groups of holomorphic automorphisms of ball and the bi-disc, which fix the origin.
0: Hmm. So when you say poly disks, poly yeah, uh, poly poly or poly.
1: No, 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 poly poly poly. Multiple ah, okay. Yeah, what does it mean? It's basically a card because we're in C N. If you take a ball in C, you remember the balls in C, like uh yeah. You take the Cartesian product of many balls in C, and you get a polydisc. Oh. Wow. Hence the word polydisc.
0: Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Nice. And
0: uh, that's it. Wow! Amazing. Amazing. Uh, I don't think I have many questions because, like, I I I got the total gist of it. You know, like. Yeah. And the idea is pretty interesting. Like I always assumed that math would be something which is like absolute and perfect. Like you could generalize everything since like it's your. Obviously, we cannot. Yeah, that's sad. That's actually really sad. Well, whether it's sad or not, I don't know, because we'll see the products of these things like in future times. But I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see I, that. I don't. I don't see it as sad. I see it as
1: the truth we figured out. Yeah. Exactly, the
0: truth. exactly. 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 So, all right. I guess this is a wrap for our first episode of From Theorems to Theories. Uh, Anyone listening, thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, And have a nice one. Goodbye, guys. Bye. Bye, guys.